If we haven't met, campus pastor here at RUF, it's uh, one of my unique privileges to be able to gather with you guys whenever you want to come. But whether you come or not, I'm still here on Thursday nights. We're making our way through the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke is a, an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, written by a guy named Luke, who to the best of our knowledge was a very well-trained doctor and historian. He gives us a portrait of Jesus' life and ministry, and the unfolding of the plan of restoration that Jesus has come to bring to bear. Okay? Well, uh, as we get into tonight's topic, uh, just share a little human experience I think we're all familiar with. If you know someone well, you can know what they really, really care about by what they talk about. Most folks will end up telling you what they really care about, even if they don't mean to, because they'll just keep coming back to certain topics or dropping things into phrases. You know, why do you keep talking about this person or this thing? It becomes evident they really care about it. If you're reading through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus keeps talking about this thing called the kingdom. In fact, he tells eight different stories about the kingdom, parables. Whatever the kingdom is, it means a whole lot to Jesus. And, and tonight, he's going to talk about the kingdom. He's even going to do a little Q&A on himself about the kingdom. It's important to him. It should be important to us. I'm going to read uh, from Luke 13. Feel free to follow along up there or in your own Bibles. Luke 13, starting in verse 18. And Jesus said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem, excuse me, toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has arisen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then we will answer. He will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Good Father, we come tonight to yet another hard text, (laughs) or hard for us uh, in our present context. Uh, Hard for many reasons. Hard because we're tired at the end of the week, whether we're actually in the middle of the semester or just further enough in that we're still deeply distracted and tired, whatever the case may be. Our hearts and our minds need help from you. Help us to see uh, what you intend to see, what you meant by this. Help us to know uh, yourself more clearly, Uh, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, One thing about me, this is sort of free, um, if you don't know this about me, I think I am probably the biggest sports fan in America that doesn't have cable. I'm serious. Uh, there may be one or two other f- freaks out of the 280 million people that follow college basketball, college football, college baseball, professional everything, tennis, track and field, college, uh, everything almost, and doesn't have cable. 
I have favorite teams in every sport. I don't have cable. If you can't tell, I'm a little resentful or bitter that I don't have cable. It's not quite up to me. But anyway, uh, on, on that TV I have that does manage to get a few stations, I saw this commercial maybe a year ago. You may have seen it. I thought it was great. It's a direct TV uh, commercial called Satisfaction. <laughs> Starts with a, a quick shot of this little 1800s pioneer cabin set in the middle of modern-day suburbia, and it zooms into this quaint living room. Uh, with a young family and, and the sweet missus approaches her husband and says dear why don't we switch to direct tv and uh, the father replies now mother we're settlers i settled for cable all my life and she responds but direct tv has been number one in customer satisfaction for over 15 years and he replies we find our satisfaction elsewhere the boy has a stick and hoop the girl has her faceless doll, and you have your cabbages. And uh, she looks at him with adoring uh, approval and says, and you have your foot stomping. And he smiles back and says, I sure do. And he starts stomping and clapping on his knee. Um, and, and the narrator finally comes over and with a tagline, don't be a settler, get rid of cable, and upgrade direct TV. Uh, I like that uh, in lots of ways. I, li- I like that commercial. I would I would settle for cable actually, um, but, but it's okay. We've settled for much worse. Um, Jesus is coming tonight and talking about the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom. And uh, to many of us, uh, probably in the room, but certainly true in the culture, uh, when Jesus talks about the kingdom or when Christians talk about the kingdom, the very language sounds like something out of 1800s pioneer skit. It sounds antiquated, quaint, unimpressive, perhaps less than satisfying. And for some others in the room and certainly in our culture, uh, it's worse. It might sound oppressive, exclusive, or backwards. You know, some people may just simply look at the world around them and say, if Jesus came to change the world by a kingdom, perhaps it's time for an upgrade, because the world's a mess. And if Jesus came to bring abundant life, like he claimed, and then you look at your own life, you think, well, perhaps it's time for an upgrade. At, really, at issue tonight, what we're talking about is the nature and the scope and the goodness of the kingdom of God, what, what Jesus came to bear in the world. And uh, the, my contention tonight, as we say in our text, is that when we rightly see the goodness of God's kingdom and His king, we'll strive to enter it. When we rightly see the goodness of the kingdom and the king, we'll strive to enter it. Now, as we look through our text, no doubt there will be things that jump out and you say, that's not exactly what I would call an impressive feature. That's not something I'm necessarily looking for. Or that's, that's not a really good selling point. Uh, Jesus makes it really clear in verse 24 that he wants people to enter. Verse 24 says, strive to enter the narrow door. And uh, the question I think I, I sort of want us all to ask tonight is, why, why should I? And if I do, how can I? Because there seems to be lots of reasons why we shouldn't. And uh, our text is going to present us some paradoxes. And uh, I'm just going to own all the paradoxes. In fact, three paradoxes here for your main points tonight. First, a weakness that changes the world. Second, a narrow door for all the world. And third, enter through the exit. 
So, uh, starting with a weakness that changes the world, Jesus Jesus starts this conversation by asking himself uh, a question. But uh, for the benefit of those who are listening, he asks, What is the kingdom of God like? To what can we compare it? And he gives here two similitudes. Uh, not allegories. Allegories you would try to press every detail. The the farmer's this, and the sower's this, and the tree's that, and the ground's that. And he's making one point, one simile. There's like one thing he's really talking about. And uh, the 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 two similitudes he offers us are 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 stories of of great. Well, not even great. Almost incomprehensible weakness. You, you read these stories, and what you see is perceived weakness. Verse 19, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed. Verse 21, the kingdom is like leaven. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong. When I saw like a few of you short, most of you aren't employing mustard seed in your home or even mustard. Uh, you're just buying the cheap value right stuff uh, for a dollar. Uh, you might not know much about mustard seed. It took 750 grains of mustard seed to make one gram. These are really, really small things, right? Really small. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And if you're one of his disciples, and frankly the disciples, his original 12 followers, were people about your age, maybe with an exception or two. They've left everything, family, work, to follow him. And Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And it would be completely natural for them and you to say, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I've just joined the lowliest losing cause in the history of the world. The kingdom's like a mustard seed? Jesus, we want the kingdom to change the world. You know, we got evil oppressors we'd like to roll back. There's injustice we'd like to fix. It's like a mustard seed? And he gives him a second story. It's like leaven. And uh, leaven uh, was not exactly yeast, but it was used like yeast. It's basically like old dough that had this organic ability still. Like you just leave it laying around the house to work into new dough. And in this case, it's being worked into like 100 pounds of dough. But it, this stuff was ubiquitous. It was just laying everywhere. There's nothing impressive about it. Uh, where, where Jesus says the kingdom's like, and you're expecting something powerful, and Jesus says it's like a mustard seed, it's like leaven. Completely unimpressive. Perceived weakness. And it gets worse. Jesus says you, you take that seed and you, and you sow it in the garden. You take the leaven and you hide it in three measures of flour, which is a huge amount. And what happens? Completely disappears, right? If you sow the seed, you no longer see it. In fact, if you don't mark it, you'll never find it again, right? You stick the leaven into the bread, you knead it, it's, it disappears. You cannot see it. The word is hidden. You, you don't know where it went to. It's gone. For all you know, it's been completely overwhelmed. It'll never produce anything. Correct? I mean, it's lost. You have good reason to think nothing will ever happen, that it's dead. Um, you know, you may even wonder, what can this possibly do? Um, Josh Ritter, singer-songwriter that I really deeply like, uh, sort of sings of the impotence of, uh, of perhaps Christianity when he, when he sings the line, The keys to the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom. The angels fly around in there, but we can't see them. Oh, maybe there is some power, but it seems to be completely locked up. We can't see any signs that this is doing anything. That's his contention. I think a different point of view might be helpful. Yeah, the, the, the world's not the way it's supposed to be. 
it's not flourishing with justice and peace. And we may wonder if what Jesus is doing is actually making uh, real progress or not. But some of this may be a, a point of view thing. Um, Chesty Puller, anyone familiar with that name? Chesty Puller? Yeah? Oh, you would. Um, <laughs> yeah, former Marine, uh, de- well-decorated, actually no one's more well-decorated than him. During one particular mission in the Korean War, uh, the Chinese communists had overrun the Yalu River, and ten Chinese divisions had surrounded Colonel Puller's first Marines. Puller saw the situation with his own particular brand of logic, and basically he told his men, those poor souls, they've got us right where we want them. We can fire in any direction now. In another occasion like that, he said, they're in front of us, they're behind us, we're flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away from us now. He was serious. In some ways, depending on your point of view, that's exactly what's going on. God has come into the midst of the world to bring his kingdom to bear with tremendous power. It looks weak. It looks vulnerable. (laughs) Boom! Just like that. It looks overwhelmed, and then zap! Tremendous things happen. Yeah. And so, uh, what, what Jesus is saying is not that the kingdom is weak or hidden, but the transformative power that happens, that this seed that is hidden, that's planted, this leaven that just seemingly disappears, it grows into a tree. It actually leavens bread, and it transforms it chemically into something else. Um, And uh, the point is not that the kingdom's weak. The point is that it's perceived as weak, but it has the word, the seed, that what's driving the kingdom, though perceived as weak, is actually really powerful and able to bring transformation from the inside out. and uh, I, I don't have time to do a full history lesson. I, don't, I think you would get rather bored by that. But I, uh, I would commend to any of you a, at least a short study on the history of Christianity over 2,000 years. You may have the impression, living in the West, perhaps rationally so, that, that the kingdom, that Christianity is not doing so well, growth of new atheism, the growth of nons, well-reputed, and uh, pure research and everything else. But the church continues to grow all over the world. All over the world. The church grows in impossibly hard places. People are believing Jesus more and more and embracing Christianity more and more all over the world. In Africa, in China, Philippines, Southeast Asia, in places you think would be impossible for it to thrive. It thrives. Uh, to the tune of over 2 billion people at this point that would identify as Christians. The history of the church, of the kingdom that Jesus brought to bear is one of growth. It's one of surprising growth. All over the world, in hard places, in ways we wouldn't expect. So, uh, you may be thinking then, okay, well, whatever. Maybe that's true. So, whatever. Uh, maybe that's good. But but really, this text has some troubling features, Derek. You may not have noticed it. I did. Um, you get this whole narrow door thing. You're saying like two billion people, but, but Jesus says few get in. What do we do with this? And, um, yeah, our second point here is that uh, the way the kingdom works is it offers a narrow door for all the world. Jesus asked himself another question. Oh, no, actually, someone else asked him another question. Will those uh, who are saved be few? And I think they're actually looking for like a like a, a number. 
you know, a quantitative answer. And uh, Jesus doesn't answer that way. He gives them a, more of a qualitative answer. Uh, they're, they're perhaps looking for a hypothetical thing, and he's trying to be actually personally helpful. And he answers in a way that would encourage that asker in any of us to strive to enter in. Now, uh, I want to own some hard parts of this text right here. Not running away from it yet. Um, you know, the, the door is narrow. That's what it says, verse 24. Um, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There will be people that try to get in that won't. And uh, verses 25 through 27 sort of detail those futile attempts that folks, uh, once the door is closed, will be beating on the door, asking them to get in, and they will not be admitted. Verse 28, sort of the clincher here on this one. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves cast out. Cast out. Excluded. Excommunicated. Expelled. Out. Out. Um, yeah, just in case you're not clear what we're talking about. We are talking about hell. Um, but we're not, actually. Not going to do it right now. I, but if you're disappointed or think I'm a coward, I'm not a coward. Much. I'm not a coward, actually. No. Um, no. If you're disappointed, I'm not talking about hell because you think I'm a coward. Here's my promise. If you're just dying for a good sermon on hell, uh, two weeks from this week, you'll get your sermon on hell. I know almost none of you are looking forward to a sermon on hell. But it's in the text, and it's an objection that people have. How can I believe in Christianity when, when God is willing to consign people to hell? How can I believe in a God of love that would actually eternally punish people? Well, we'll talk about it in two weeks. It's in this text. It's in another text that's coming. Um, Jesus isn't afraid to say these things, and I'm not afraid to talk about them. So two weeks from now, we'll talk about it more. I'll even take your questions. Alright, so, um, but I do want to deal with what's here, not completely run away from it. Jesus is saying the door is narrow. Not everyone's going to get in. And uh, it, it sort of seems maybe to some of us like this. There's this old, uh, anybody here, you have to be really old and weird, or weird. Anybody here ever read a Choose Your Own Adventure book? Yeah. Okay. All right, I take it back. You're not weird. <laughs> Sorry. I apologize, actually. Um, I thought you might be weird because those were written when I was a kid. Are they still writing new ones? Might be the same ones. Okay. Okay. Well, yes. So maybe some of you, that's true, maybe some of you know this one. There's one particular book named UFO 5440. He's laughing. He memorized this one. Um, UFO 5440 is a really interesting story. If you're familiar with the if you're not familiar with the way the books work, as you go, you, you reach choices. You, you make a choice, takes you to a different page, you read, you read, you meet your fate, you suffer the consequences of your decision, or perhaps you thrive and live on. just depends on the choices you make. In UFO 5440, there's one page that describes the player finding a paradise and living happily ever after. There's a problem. There's no storyline that reads that leads to that page. They wrote the book in such a way that you could not get to that page. You're thinking that's weird. Yeah, some weird soul wrote that. Well, that may feel what that may be what this feels like. The, the promise of a kingdom, the promise of rest, the promise of glory, but you can't get in. The door's too narrow. How do you actually get there? And so, while I, well, I want to own that Jesus says the door is narrow, I also want you to see something else. 
that the door is broad enough for the whole world. By the whole world, I don't mean everyone. Nowhere does the Bible claim that everyone, this universalism, uh, goes to heaven. Um, but that the whole world is invited, and people from the whole world will be there. You see it in verse 29. People will come from east, west, north, south, recline at table in the kingdom of God. Uh, what Jesus is foretelling here, and what's happened since then, is that just like God always wanted from the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, the nations have come in. All the languages, all the peoples, as God created them in their diverse beauty, He's always wanted them, and they've come in. In fact, I contend, along with others, that Christianity is exclusively the most inclusive religion ever. I mix those things together, but on purpose. Transnational, translingual, transcultural. It's hard to see, because we can't get a 50,000-foot view of the entire church and see all the diverse beauty that exists all across the world over 2,000 years. But there's another portrait here that I think is similar to it that might sort of help you. Uh, You can't see the whole world and all its diverse beauty, but I'm going to show you something else. Verse 22 Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. In some ways, that looks completely boring. Like, okay, that might be the most boring verse in the New Testament. It's just a dude walking along the roads, and as he goes somewhere, he talks, and he's going to a city. Um, Actually, peel back the layers, and if you buy into what the rest of Scripture says, this is the incarnate, eternal Son of God who took human form, walking from village to village to share the good news of the gospel in a language, in a particular language, in a particular place. That's what God's willing to do. That's how much God actually wants people to enter the kingdom. That God would take human flesh, in the person of Jesus, and speak the good news in a particular language, in a particular place. That's how much God values the kingdom, how much He wants people into the kingdom, and how much He values their own culture, diversity, and language. You know, we read this in, our lingu- in English because God was willing to learn Aramaic. The Bible is written in Greek. God, God loves the lingual diversity. He loves the cultural diversity. All the nations, all the culture comes in. That's what God wants. The door is narrow, but it's broad enough for the whole world. Well, if it's narrow and you actually want to get in, hypothetically, how do you get in? If it's narrow and you actually want to get in, how do you get in? And uh, only a few clues here, but I think Jesus gives us enough to go on. Um, Jesus says, strive to enter by the narrow door. And we see people trying and failing. They seem to be knocking and trying. And the guy seems to be saying, hey man, you're just way too late. Um, And I think what's probably going on in verses 26 to 28 is you read these people. And you look at what they're offering in response is, uh, they've been presuming. They've been presuming that the door will always be open. They're presuming a lot of things. That the door will always be open. And that uh, by means of just proximity, by means of association, by means of nearness, they're okay. Look what they say. You'll begin to say, once you're excluded, the door is closed. Hey, hey, we ate and drank in your presence. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean much. I literally eat and drink in the presence of all kinds of students here at Pitt all the time. You actually eat and drink in each other's presence too. You know this place. People eat in ones. 
we do sign his presence, it doesn't mean you know them at all, right? I mean, it's sort of normal here. In some ways, that makes Pitt stranger than most campuses, you know. I remember talking to Marla about this. Like, people here are willing to eat by themselves because it's too hard to get together. We eat in each other's presence all the time. It doesn't mean we know a blasted person in the whole union. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And then they go on to say, uh, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But, so? They seem to be mistaking proximity for real relationship. The fact that they sort of know something about him for him knowing them. I've experienced this mistake, this presumption personally, and it's not cool. Let me tell you a story. A number of years ago when I lived in St. Louis, I had this, when you're in grad school, you do all kinds of weird jobs. Worked in an air traffic control tower. Yeah, true. Um, Valeted cars. On this particular day, I was setting up chairs for church. But when we got to the church, there was an unknown lady sleeping on the patio right in front of the doors. Like, I could not get in the doors because there was a person sleeping there. This was not an urban church. This was a suburban church. There, you don't see homeless people in this part of town. It was very strange. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know, didn't know her. Didn't know anything. So I decided to ask the assistant pastor who lived, like, literally next door, from, like, here to the front door of the building. So I didn't, I didn't want to instigate anything. I didn't want to call the police. I wanted to know how to care for this person in appropriate ways. So I thought maybe, maybe John will know her what to do. So it's about 10 o'clock. I walk over. I knock on John's door. I know John's home. I can see the lights. I can hear their family. I'm knocking on their front door. John's been an assistant pastor at this church four years. I've been an intern at this church eight years. I'm knocking on his door. No one answers. I'm knocking on the door. No one answers. I'm knocking on the door. This goes on. Try not to exaggerate. Four or five minutes. I know he's there. I can hear them. I know they can hear me knocking. Okay? 10 o'clock at night. Young family. Before Sunday morning. He never answers the door. Instead, as I'm knocking on the door, I, I see bright red and blue lights coming from behind me, illuminating the front yard, and then me. And I hear a car pull up, and I hear someone open open the car door and say, please turn around and stick your hands up. John called the cops on me. John called the cops on me. This is why. A couple things here. One, no one had ever knocked on his door at 10 o'clock at night. And this, this major mistake right here. I knew John. I knew John lived in that house. I knew all about John. John didn't know it was me. He had no idea it was me. John didn't know me. You're thinking, why didn't you text him? I didn't have a cell phone. Um, you know, if I had, then he would have known it was me. If he had known it was me, he'd have let me in. That's the point here. These folks are saying, like, we sort of know you. We've sort of been around you. It's presumption. We have enough of an association where we should be able to get in. And Jesus' reply is, I don't know where you came from. I don't know who you are. I don't know you. We've had the opportunity. You're right. You've aided my presence. You listened to my teaching. I don't think you've ever pursued me because I actually don't know you. I don't know who you are. Association is not enough, and presumption is dangerous. And so uh, presumption will not get you in. Just being close enough around, knowing a little bit about it, it's not enough. And, and neither will your performance. Um, uh, not a lot in this text about it, but enough, I think, for me to be able to say it. 
Some of you may be thinking, okay, Christianity here again, you're telling me it's really good, but you tell me people can't get in. And, uh, and it's, I would need you to be really clear on this. It's not about how good you are. It's not about your performance. It's not about what you've done, or what you're doing. It's not that. The, the kingdom is not earned, but it's entered into. Uh, and a couple clues about this. Verse 30, Jesus tells, just sort of as a warning shot here at the end. Behold, some of those who are last will be first, and some of those who are first will be last. Jesus is talking about those who will actually enter the kingdom. And he's saying, hey, some of those folks that you think are A+, A-list, top of the leaderboard, shoe wins. Not getting in. It's not about performance. Some of the people that you think are the worst losers, the most useless dregs of society, they're in. The last will be first. The, the logic of performance has nothing to do with who gets in. And, uh, and, and there's another little clue, just another little clue in the text that shoots holes in our, in our resume-oriented attempts to be good enough for God. And it's where Jesus is going. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, in some ways, it doesn't mean much. He's just heading in a geographic direction. Except for Jesus has made it really clear since chapter 9 that he's going there for a particular reason. That's to die. In fact, the verses that follow right after this make that point. That he's going to go there, he's going to share the good news and the hope that Jerusalem will listen, that they will enter. And then on the third day, he will die. He's going there to give up his life. And he wouldn't be doing that if this was a performance review-oriented way of entering. It's not about your performance. That's not how you enter in. Um, The narrow door, the narrow door that Jesus is talking about, frankly... Is him. He's the narrow door. That's how you get in. The door is too narrow for your sins. You don't get in carrying them. They have to be forgiven. He's willing to forgive them. You have to come to him for forgiveness. You can't squeeze through the door with your sins. You can't. You have to come through him, who willingly died for your sins. You trust in him, those are paid for. And you can't come in with your performance and your good works. No room for those either. He lived and died a righteous, perfect life to cover your sins and your perceived good works too. It's, it's Him that you enter in by. His forgiveness and His righteousness. His account that you uh, enter in by. So, uh, you know, as, as you think about this and as you think about Christianity in general, um, beware. Uh, you know, presumption or or performance, or the pride that would lead you to do either one of them, and consider uh, the cross. That's what really this is all about. Why would why would God and the Son willingly come and die if you could earn your way in? If you could simply get in by just being around Him, what a useless, wasteless death if that was the case. No, consider the cross. He made a way. That's the way, the narrow way. There was no other way. So, uh, sort of bringing things together here, uh, as we talk about the kingdom, and uh, sort of started with this idea that as we talk about the kingdom and what Jesus has come to bear and the work he's doing in the world and how the kingdom's at work in the world now, some of you may be unimpressed, looking for an upgrade, uh, somewhat disappointed in features of the kingdom, feeling at times that maybe you are indeed or we are indeed on the wrong side of history. Some of you were attracted by the newest fad, the newest exciting thing, your own desire to be epic. 
perhaps a little embarrassed by the kingdom or the church. Frankly, there's reasons to be embarrassed by the church sometimes. Um, but I want you to consider a couple things as you think about the kingdom, what Jesus offers, and his desire for you to enter. He's encouraged us, all of us, to strive to enter. He wants people to enter. But in your striving to enter, none of you will strive more than he did. Not a single one of us who will ever enter the kingdom will strive more than Jesus did. Think of what he did to make this possible. God became flesh. lived a perfect life. We say yes to temptation easily. It comes and we're like, nah, yes, yes, that sounds great. I will do that gladly. Or, no, no, not today. Yes, I'll do that. Thank you. Uh, Jesus said no all his life long, and it was hard, in order to live a righteous life. And uh, in order for us to enter, he exited. He made a, a gruesome, costly exit for our, for our sake. That he went to Jerusalem knowing what was going to have to happen there, and that he gave up his life so that we could enter. He strove in ways that we will never strive. He lived in ways we will never live, and he died so that we could enter. That's how much Jesus values the kingdom. How much does Jesus value the kingdom? He gave his whole life to it. How much does he want you to enter in? He gave his whole life for it. He died for you, that you might enter in. So that's the good news for the night. Even the good news is heavy. But uh, I'll pray and, uh, and ask that God will uh, show us the goodness in these things. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that uh, you were never a coward. That you talked.